Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. When we talk about analytics and AI-driven organizations, we often think of the likes of Google, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, and Tencent, which have all risen to dominance during the internet era. But what about companies that have been around for much longer? Can they achieve the same results with their data? To answer this question, I recently spoke to Tom Davenport, who is one of the world's foremost thought leaders and authors in the areas of business analytics, data science, and AI. He is the president's distinguished professor of information technology and management at Babson College, a fellow of the MIT Center for Digital Business, and an independent senior advisor to Deloitte Analytics. He has authored more than 20 books and hundreds of articles on topics such as artificial intelligence, analytics, information and knowledge management, process management, and enterprise systems. He is a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications around the world. In this episode, Tom gives us a history lesson of data and analytics and provides an in-depth description of what it takes for traditional companies to ascend through what he calls the four eras of analytics. Let's get to it. Here's Tom. Tom Davenport, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks. Happy to be here, Jonas. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Tom, and this is special because when I started in analytics 15 years ago, you were already at that time considered one of the main, today we call it the influencers. I don't even know if that word existed back then <laughs> in the sense that we use it now, but you were one of the main influencers in the field of analytics. And I remember reading your book, Competing on Analytics, back in 2007. And since then, you've written many more books, articles, research papers, and generally contributed so much to the profession. So uh, thank you for that on behalf of myself and anyone else who works in the field. Now, I've given a little bit of an introduction to you already, but could you tell us in your own words a bit about yourself, your career background, and what you do? Sure. So I'm a professor at Babson College, which is only a business school in the Boston area, known primarily for entrepreneurship, which is not my primary focus. But I'm a visiting professor at Oxford Said Business School for several years now. I'm a fellow of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, and I'm a senior advisor to Deloitte's analytics and AI practice. And I've worked with a number of companies as an advisor, and I try to write, do a lot of research and writing on 
analytics and AI and related subjects? So generally very busy in the field of analytics, data and, and AI. How did you get into this space in the first place? Because when you did that, when you started in this sphere, you were really want someone driving it rather than taking over the reins from those who've been there before you, if that makes sense. Yeah, I didn't have much competition to start with, which was great. <laughs> But in graduate school, I had done a lot of analytics work and I mostly paid my way through graduate school, even a little bit of my undergraduate training, doing statistical consulting, mostly to social scientists at universities. And I became a consultant and then a business school academic, and I didn't really do much in analytics, but worked in other areas related to information technology management. And I was doing a lot of work in the knowledge management area. This was probably in the mid-1990s or so. And around the turn of the century, I guess, I concluded that, you know, knowledge management was great, but people were primarily focused on textual knowledge or in some cases, you know, implicit knowledge in people's heads. But they didn't really pay much attention to knowledge derived from data. And so I decided I'd start doing some work in that space. And I did one research project. By this point, I was running a research center for Accenture. And I did one research project on, it was called Data to Knowledge to Results, Building an Analytic Capability and Publish It. Nobody paid any attention whatsoever. And then a few years later, I started this project with SaaS and primarily SaaS, which was, you know, the leading proprietary vendor of analytics software at the time. It wasn't really called analytics so much. It was called statistics. But that project was to look at how companies were using business intelligence as it was primarily being referred to. And I concluded that, you know, some companies were really quite aggressive about it and were really competing on it and was trying to figure out a word for it. And I ended up calling it analytics. And I remember the head of marketing for SaaS said, why, why did you call it analytics? Nobody uses that term. But it seemed like to me a broader term than just statistics. So anyway, it caught on. And I think people liked hearing about what leading companies were doing, even though most of them were not leading at the time and have been You know, I might have moved on to other topics if it hadn't been so popular and successful. Usually, you know, if a topic loses interest on the part of, you know, the business public, I move on. But obviously, analytics and big data and AI have not lost interest yet. So I'm still with it 20 years later. So I can tell you that one of the things that appeals to me in this area is also that it is nascent and so evolving all the time. And we kind of have to create it as we go rather than work on something that's been around for a long time. Uh, it's part of the fun is to make people see what we can see that this can do in the future if we just get the right building blocks together. Yeah, certainly a rapidly changing field, which I think, you know, puts a lot of burdens on people in the field, but also makes it quite stimulating. Absolutely. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that because today's two topics are sort of the history of analytics and how it's evolved and then the leadership that's necessarily required to continue to evolve through that. 
And Tom, you have this term that you use or a description, which, you, which is the four areas of analytics. Could you talk about what they are and perhaps give us a bit of a description of the details underneath these four areas, four eras? Sure. Yeah. So the first era, I really call it the artisanal era because it's, you know, very slow and labor intensive and all human based and involved small data and was kind of a back office activity, not very prominent. This was what prevailed when I started doing my own work in analytics and in graduate school. And it continued for quite a long time, I'd say up until the turn of the century, maybe around 2000, when you started to see these companies in Silicon Valley doing things with much, much more data than any of us had ever envisioned. And so that became the sort of the big data era. And it was mostly practiced by Silicon Valley startups. And it didn't really involve a lot of new analytics approaches. It was mostly data management approaches. You know, that's when we started thinking about Hadoop and Pig and Hive and Python and all these kind of open source approaches to managing data and analytics, not so not so innovative, I would say, at that point. Although there was a fair amount of new um, data types that people started to use initially, just sort of clickstream data, but eventually other types of relatively unstructured data. And then around, you know, I mostly work with big companies, then around 2012 or 2013 or so, I started to notice that those big companies were basically using a lot of the same approaches that the Silicon Valley companies were, but they were also doing, you know, more traditional analytics, decision support based analytics, only doing it on a much larger scale, a more industrialized basis for it. And so I call that the data economy era, where almost every company started to think about how you analyze data if you're going to be successful as a, as a business. As I say, you know, big data, small data, the more traditional approaches, plus the more, you know, highly industrialized approaches, starting in some companies to get into machine learning, because machine learning and predictive analytics are at a certain level synonymous. Machine learning often involves more complex algorithms and so on. But anyway, that all led around, I don't know, 2017, 2018, obviously the cycle times are shortening into the AI era where much more use of machine learning, more complex algorithms, more automation of model development, just many, many more models with much larger volumes of data. And I think less interest in traditional analytics just because of the power of machine learning. But as I say, it's a pretty, I think, smooth continuum across across era three to era four. And most of the era three companies have now moved pretty substantially into era four. Is that enough of a description? Or? <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, I uh, find it uh, interesting, the observation of the cycle times and how it's speeding up the jump between one to two to three to four and so on. And I think especially the last five years, I've found the industry to be evolving very fast in terms of tools, techniques, and, and also the skill sets that are necessarily required of the people inside 
doing the analytics, but also the organizations consuming this stuff. Can I just say one thing about that? I agree with you. And one of the really challenging things for analytics-oriented people is the skills that were necessary in the first era never go away. The second era skills never go away. They just kind of accumulate. So I think it's one of the reasons why this idea that one type of person, one person can do it all is no longer really feasible. This data scientist unicorn that can do everything you need to do in order to be successful with analytics and AI It's just impossible. There are just too many different skills involved that we've accumulated, you know, over the different eras of, of analytics. Yeah, thank you for calling that out, Tom. And to listeners out there that who are sitting there feeling very scared with all the stuff you have to learn, here's Tom Davenport telling you, you can't learn it all. So make, <laughs> make sure you don't feel overwhelmed, even though it can be like that. Tom, so you, you touched on something there, which is We're all talking about analytics 4.0, but there's still a lot of the 1.0, 2.0 activity going on, the, the back office activity. I know that we definitely uh, in my team do that on a regular basis um, and do have to manage some of that stuff. If you were to put a rough percentage on companies, organizations, maybe across industries, if you want to pick particular industries that do analytics 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0 respectively, What would that look like? I suppose what I'm talking about really is where they've matured to rather than whether they're doing all or, or one. Yeah, well, I think now the vast majority of at least, you know, medium to large companies are doing analytics 1.0. You know, maybe they're doing it in Excel or something like that, but you have to do reporting as a public company at least, or you'll, and you have to do it fairly well or you'll go to jail if you're the chief financial officer. So that's pretty important. Era two, I think I view that the remaining aspects of era two, I think are mostly now web analytics. And most companies, I think, do some of that. You can do it for free in Google Analytics if you want, as I say, not terribly sophisticated. It's mostly counting things, but it's quite common. Era three, I, you know, I kind of feel like about half of large companies are doing that in addition to the first two things. And then era four, I mean, the data suggests that from data from surveys suggests that around 40 to 50% of companies have some AI activity going on, but most of it is not deployed into production. So if you're looking at, you know, really aggressive use of AI, I think you're in the 5% or less category. And I, I'm, I'm quite interested in this because I am just finishing a book now. It's not going to be called competing on AI, but it could be. It's basically like competing on analytics, only it's about AI. And it's about companies that are really aggressive in their use of AI and you know building their their business strategies around it. And it's a pretty small percentage. Yeah, interesting. The percentage of five percent is obviously growing, but it shows you how how hard it is to get to that level at this point in time, at least for most companies, uh, regardless of scale or volume of data that they might have sitting there. It's an organizational maturity. So. Could you give us some examples, perhaps, of some of these companies that have managed to get to that analytics 4.0? And, and what are the elements that make these organizations more advanced than others across strategy and vision, 
but also their technical and operational ability to to bring these things to life. Sure. Well, I'll give you some names of companies first, and then I'll tell you sort of what they do. I didn't really find any in Australia, but it doesn't mean there aren't any, but they're probably the closest geographically was Ping An in China or DBS Bank in Singapore, both of whom I classified as kind of AI-fueled, I was calling them, or AI-first, or um, all-in on AI, I think the book is going to be called. And then if you look in other parts of the world, in the U.S., biggest, largest grocery chain, Kroger, falls into that category. Capital One, which was one of my banking competing on analytics company, is now really aggressive on AI outside of the U.S., Shell, Airbus doing some really interesting work, Unilever, and in Canada, a fair number of companies. I talked about Scotiabank and Loblaw, which is the leading retailer, and Manulife, some leading insurance company. So what do they have in common? Well, they have you know strong leadership that really cares about this, which has always been important. I wrote a little piece about um, Piyush Gupta, the CEO of DBS, and how he's really played a very strong role as a leader of their AI capabilities. And same is true of most of the other companies. They are investing and building capability broadly, a lot of different technologies, a lot of different use cases all around the organization, you know, and many of them in production, you know, not just in a kind of experimental piloting approach. They are addressing the issue of their people from the standpoint of, A, do we have a cadre of people who can do data science-oriented work? In many cases, also, you know, empowering the sort of citizen analysts or the citizen data scientists to do that kind of work with things like automated machine learning and so on. They are also thinking about what does it mean for the people who are going to be working with AI and how do we upskill them? And some of them, including Unilever, has a very good approach to that, I think. They are really building their strategies around AI. So that might be new products and services. Uh, It might be um, in the book draft, which I'm just finishing, about uh, Morgan Stanley doing the next best action program for its customers that really changes the way they propose investments to them. It could be Ping An is so incredible in terms of their use of these ecosystem models where they align with various companies in five different areas. I think it's banking, insurance, automobiles, smart cities, and healthcare. And in aligning with those companies, they also end up getting more customers. And if they get more customers, they get more data and they're to get more data, their models get better. It's this kind of incredible virtuous circle. And a number of companies I've found are doing these sort of ecosystems with enabled by AI, which, you know, it's not too different from what Google and Facebook and so on were doing in, in Uber and Airbnb and social media. But in this book, I'm really focused on the, you know, the legacy companies and how do you create a AI-based competitor out of a company that not a startup, it's much harder to change them. And um, I don't know, I think those are the primary factors that, you know, obviously they have to have a lot of data. They are 
building new technology environments to support all of that data. Almost all of them are using data lakes of some type or other. Many of them have moved into the cloud, not all of them. And I think it's possible to do this work on premise, but many companies have said it's made it somewhat easier for them to do this kind of work, integrating data and so on in the in the cloud. The ability for old companies to move into this is often a really challenging thing. So um, I'm finding it really nice to hear. And on behalf of the audience, also nice to hear that it can be done. And a lot of so-called old companies have done it. You don't have to be a Silicon Valley startup to get there. And uh, you're making me think of at the time when I worked in banking, we visited a startup bank. We were sort of doing some knowledge sharing with them and they showed us their technology platform, including also how they're capturing data and how they wanted to use it. And we said to them, oh, look, we're so jealous of what you've built here. This is fantastic. And they said, well, you know what? We're jealous of you because you have customers. We don't have any customers <laughs> actually going through this. So uh, it, there's a huge chicken and egg problem uh, or, or lots of them throughout the, all of these areas. So Tom, you talked a lot about banking here, actually, and financial services in general. You also used insurance examples. And typically, when you talk about very advanced analytics and machine learning AI, the examples that you hear are Netflix, Amazon, Facebook, all those companies that have really risen from nothing to stardom in the last, call it, 20 years. But there are banks out there, more traditional organizations that do succeed with this stuff. Why are they different to all their other incumbent competitors? And how do those other incumbents follow suit? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I thought a lot about that relative to DBS. And I think DBS was a kind of a not very impressive bank in terms of its customer service levels a couple of decades ago. And people referred to it as damn bloody slow. And it was almost like a government agency. It was created by the Singapore government um, initially. I think it just has a lot to do with a leadership. Piyush Gupta had a lot to do with it. He surrounded himself with some really smart people. I initially started working on AI with his head of technology and operations, a guy named Dave Gledhill, who's now joined Lloyd's in, in the UK. He's British to begin with. But a lot of really smart people, a kind of, at least in, in DBS's case, a really strong orientation to competing with everybody. They view their competitors not as traditional banks, but as startups, even though they're not yet competitors in most banking areas, they want to have the same kind of, you know, rapid product development approaches and rapid innovation and so on that those companies do. And they continually refer to those, those digital natives as their real competitors. And then dissatisfaction with the status quo, always improving. I mean, I wrote a little piece about their use of a chatbot for a digital bank that they started in India, all digital, no branches. And it's now in various several countries in Asia, including Indonesia. But just constant dissatisfaction with any customer need to call the call center, you know, trying to figure out why did they feel they needed to do that. And why can't we put that capability in the chatbot and so on? So just constant improvement using um, technology and process changes 
as well. He saw the same thing in a anti-money laundering application at, at DBS where they had a system, a rules-based system, as most banks do, but they added machine learning to it and they added network graph to it and they put in a new platform to deliver more data to it and, you know, just kind of constant improvement. Leadership here is obviously a very important part, if not uh, the most important part, at least to get started. Someone sets the vision and so on. How do you see that being very different in in your example here with DBS vis-a-vis other organizations, is, is it all driven from the top or is there a different organizational culture as well that consumes this stuff? Well, yeah, I thought a lot about that. I'm a sociologist by academic training. So the kind of organization and leadership side is very interesting to me. And I have certainly seen examples where the organization can do pretty well with analytics and AI with kind of mid to senior managers sort of leading the charge and eventually they persuade other people to do it and so on. But I don't think you make really fast progress without senior executive like the CEO leading it. And certainly that's true in DBS and Ping An. I would say some of the less dramatic successes in AI, you know, they they, the senior executives support it. The CEO supports it. They talk about it some to the outside world, but they're just not quite as passionate about it. And they don't understand technology as much. I mean, I found it really interesting when I talked to Piyush Gupta at DBS. I said, you know, how did this come about? And he said, well, you know, I was a protege of John Reed at Citigroup. And John Reed, I knew from early in my career, was probably the first banker to really identify information technology as a competitive weapon. And City, you know, now I don't think City has that lead, but for a while, you know, they were the first in the United States to do automated teller machines, and they were just very aggressive. They had a separate business unit to do technology-based innovation. And so he learned from him. I think ultimately you have to be a pretty good technologist if you're going to believe in this stuff. I wrote about another company that does um, serves the insurance industry and is doing these applications to do AI-based identification of collision damage and estimations. And he made these long-term bets that someday you'd be able to take a high-quality photo on your smartphone of your car's damage. Someday you'd be able to analyze that with deep learning models. They started to collect data on on images of collisions or they had it and they really made it a huge asset. So it takes some some of these long-term bets. And unless you have some comfort with how the technology is evolving, that's difficult to do. Yeah. And long-term bets require, as you said, a lot of support from the top, right from the top and ability to see that vision with you when you're you're building so that you don't get caught up in quarterly reporting cycles and and all the rest. Yeah. Long-term bets require long-term investment and CEOs tend to become aware of that investment. If they're not bought in, they probably are not going to be happy with it. So Tom, we've talked now about this maturity through Analytics 1.0 to all the way up to 4.0. And with that, the people who are leading the analytics functions across organizations have to mature through that 
as well, because we talked about uh, not having any unicorns anywhere. But uh, I think the the leaders that that sort of manage these teams of functional areas often have to know enough about all of it to be able to orchestrate that stuff. And that actually is very hard and a very difficult job because it's evolving so fast. But we as analytics leaders need to mature and evolve with that evolution. So to get to 4.0 for most organizations in, say, the next five to 10 years, what are some of the do's and don'ts of analytics leaders who necessarily have to push this agenda? Well, yeah, and it's it's not easy because there aren't that many people that understand analytics and can have some of the other leadership traits that you need to manage those groups well. So I don't think you necessarily have to be a data scientist to lead those groups, but clearly, you know, you have to understand what's possible with analytics and, and AI, and that requires a pretty good understanding of the technology. You have to be a good evangelist for this stuff because the vast majority of organizations, they don't necessarily understand what the value is and how you know they can pursue it in terms of various applications and use cases. So I would say almost all of the good analytics and AI leaders I've seen spend a lot of their time evangelizing. That is less true if you go to a digital native firm where you don't need to evangelize as much. Everybody sort of gets it. But in traditional firms, I think that's very important. And I like this term, um, Mark Schaefer, who is the, basically the head of analytics at Disney. He started out as heading revenue management applications, but now they, his group pretty much does everything. And he calls it evangelytics, uh, you know, really evangelizing about analytics. And they make it a practice to, to do that. And they have kind of conferences where they can teach people about what other companies are doing and so on. Uh, anyway, it's a good term. I think, you know, the ability to build trust and and to have good relationships with senior executives, not necessarily something that, you know, data scientists are born with. So if you're purely technical in these roles, I think it can be quite challenging to adopt some of these other attributes of evangelism and understanding the business well and communicating effectively with business leaders. So I think you're probably better off with, you can get by with a little less analytical sophistication and you need some more business sense and good relationship skills and so on. Obviously, you need to know something about um, information technology and data, and many in many cases now, the chief analytics officer is also the chief data officer. So you have to think quite carefully about you know how we're going to transition our data environment and how do we add value. And I think it's fortunate. I always say, chief data officer without analytics is a really tough job because it's hard to show short-term value with data management. You can show short-term value with analytics, but obviously analytics depends on data. So in many cases, I think it does make sense to combine those two jobs. So those are those are just a, a few of the things. Yeah. So to the listeners out there, it's important that you practice your communication skills as much as your coding skills. Absolutely. If you look at the evolution of different coding languages over the, the period of era one to four, they've changed many times, but the thing that hasn't changed is the language that comes out of our mouths. So you need to master <laughs> that first and foremost. Well, yeah. And related to that, I think, you know, more and more of the coding 
can be automated, you know, whether it's kind of point and click interfaces or low code, no code tools or automated machine learning, more and more of the computer code necessary to create an analytical model can be automated. The evangelism and trust and relationship building and stakeholder management, no automation there, sorry to say. So Tom, these organizations that have really evolved in this space, it sounds like they often have a chief data and analytics officer. So they have that executive cloud. They have support from the CEO or more than support. They have an absolute clear remit and an agenda that they need to push. They have the technology that they need. Uh, they have the skill sets in the organization to do the work. Is there anything else that these organizations are doing that is sort of, I suppose, invisible glue that you can't add up like that? Yeah, you, you have to have a pretty good sense. I mean, it's true of, of any successful CEO. You also have to have a pretty good sense of where the industry is going and how data and analytics and AI might contribute to that. So an, an ability to sort of, you know, see the big picture, at least of the future, and, you know, have to have an ability to sort of bring the organization along with you to, I, I remember when I um, first started working with this guy, Gary Loveman, who he was a Harvard Business School professor, friend of mine, he became CEO of Harris, and then that became Caesars. For a while, it was the largest gaming or gambling company in the world. But he said, you know, the one big mistake I made is that I didn't get rid of people who couldn't follow the kind of data-based, analytics-based approach that we were taking quickly enough. I just kind of assumed that they would come around and they, they didn't. And eventually he had to fire them anyway. <laughs> so I think bringing the rest of the organization with you is really important. And even, even there, he was there for, I don't know, 10 years or so. When he left, the organization slipped back into some of its old, you know, less analytical and database decision practices. So it's really hard to get an entire organization to change its thinking. So you're describing here the risk and benefit of having that really strong evangelist that that one person who drives that agenda and makes a lot of stuff happen. How do we get organizations to consume all this stuff at scale and, and sort of embed the cultural aspect into the organization so that we don't have uh, the one person who uh, is either there or not and uh, everything happens accordingly? Yeah, well, you know, more and more organizations now are doing these kind of data literacy programs. I think that's a part of what you need. You have to understand what types of data are available and what you can do with them in terms of your business. Some of that can be kind of generic within a company, but some of it probably needs to be related to the specific function that you're in. You know, how do you do data-driven marketing? How do you do data-driven supply chain work and so on? It comes down in part to how people are evaluated and compensated. If you can move to an environment where you're rewarding people for the database decisions that they made, even if the decisions don't necessarily work out well always, if, they, if people use the right approach to decision-making, sometimes luck is going to get in the way, uh, good or bad. 
but that's a big factor and that motivates people. Hiring people in the first place who care about this sort of thing, you know, Capital One, at one point you had to pass a quantitative test before you could be hired in the company. I still remember talking to the head of human resources. He said, thank God my company was acquired by Capital One. I could have never passed that test. (laughs) But I think those are all factors in having a kind of an ongoing long-term culture that uses this this set of approaches to deciding and acting. So one of the ways that I describe to people that are not so aware of what analytics is and what it does right now is I compare it to IT in the early 90s, because I think that's kind of where we're at, both in the level of maturity relative to where it will go and, and also in the organizational ability to consume analytical output. So uh, in the early 90s, we're sort of starting to get PCs into the office and people are learning how to move their typewriting to computerize the version. So we're all sitting there doing a WordPerfect and whatever else it was called back then. But all of a sudden, there's an expectation that you're just computer literate when you walk into an organization. No one's asking you whether you know uh, Microsoft Office uh, today when you start in most jobs. And we also saw in that period of time, chief information officers or chief technology officers, whatever you want to call them, really come out from from the back office that you've described already in terms of analytics to right to the forefront and being the strategic role and and leadership in the organization. And you can envision the same for for this space. So if we take our uh, our long-term goggles on here and look to maybe 10, 20 years out, do you think that every organization will have a chief data and analytics officer there? And will they be a really important part of that executive leadership in most organizations? Or are they transitional roles that will morph into something else as we get there and and the organization is, quote unquote, analytics literate? That's a very good question. I mean, I find it hard to understand how you could do without that role in um, any sort of large organization. But I think the first chief data officer was appointed in 1992 by Capital One, interestingly. And every year I work with a little, one of the companies that I advise is a consulting boutique called New Vantage Partners. And they do a big survey or a survey of about a hundred large mostly chief data and analytics officers, one question that's always asked is, is the chief data and or analytics officer job you know, well-established and thriving, or is it still nascent and evolving, or you know, have we seen lots and lots of turnover in it? And the numbers are getting better, but still only 40% say that it's established and successful. So it's turns out to be really hard to make a data environment better. And I think that's part of the problem. But I think we will definitely have chief data and analytics officers or some variation upon them for the foreseeable future for most large organizations. And my guess is that they'll also, you know, since ultimately a lot of analytics and AI is intended to make decision-making better, I think they'll probably also be end up being responsible for decision-making in the company and how it's done. We still haven't really done much with decision-making in the vast majority of organizations. And if you ask a company, what are your top five most important decisions? 
They can hardly ever tell you. They don't keep track of who made what decision and how they did it. So we have no accountability. So I'm hoping that that decision-making component gets added. Although, you know, it's decision-making can be very political. Many CEOs say I'm responsible for decision-making, but in terms of really embedding better decision approaches into organizations, I think we haven't really seen much of that yet. And I'm hoping that it, it becomes a responsibility of some role and chief data and analytics officer would be a, a reasonable one to add it to. So you're describing here an element of analytics maturing from, from back office to front office and, and also analytics being embedded in, in the products and services that organizations provide to their customers. So, so products become not just digital products, but data products. And that requires, of course, a lot more of analytics leaders to produce products that are um, user-friendly, ha- you know, have ease of use, are technically relevant, are relevant in the marketplace. So you're really starting to combine technology analytics, custom experience design, and all the things that really matter to end product design. So we're morphing here into actually being a product and experience designers at the same time as a building models that are statistically significant and uh, are relevant and don't have bias in them and so on. The complexity uh, goes up manifold. What are the companies that do this well doing to facilitate that connection between the functions across the organization and how do they structure themselves for one? Where do the analysts of the data scientists sit in the organization, but also how do they foster that collaboration uh, to create these products and services that necessarily require cross-functional skill sets to come about? Yeah. Well, you know, I think you hit on it and we haven't talked about it thus far, but I think more and more companies are kind of realizing that they need this product management role in data and analytics and AI. And it's similar to the kind of product management roles we've seen for traditional products in that it's cross-functional. They don't necessarily have a lot of people working for them, but they kind of coordinate and collaborate across the organization. They understand how analytics work, but they're also quite focused on how do we introduce it successfully into the marketplace. And by the way, I'm not talking just about external data products. I think you could take the same orientation to internal data products. A new customer attrition model that you use in marketing, I think could also involve a a product manager. And that product management in general is a relatively new concept. You know, somebody training for product management. You can do it in business schools now, but it's still relatively new. Data product management is really new. There are a few people trying to focus on what it means and running a few seminars about it and so on. But I think we need a lot more of that since I think increasingly almost all of the things that we introduce to customers will have a data and analytics and AI component to it, you know, there'll be smart products in one way or another. And so every product manager is going to have to understand this kind of thinking. Yeah, very fascinating evolution that we're going through here. And uh, this is something for companies to really think about how they structure their organizations for the medium and the long term to be able to one, produce all this stuff and, and to consume it for themselves and their customers. Now, 
Tom, we're sort of coming towards the end here. I've got three more questions for you. I'll answer quickly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Firstly, where do you see the biggest opportunities for analytics 4.0 to really take off in the next decade? Well, it's certainly in the more consumer-oriented industries. They're the ones who have the most data by far. They, you know, are trying to personalize their products and services. They are trying to really understand at a much more granular level their customer needs and desires. So banking, insurance to a somewhat lesser degree, healthcare, I think is probably one of the biggest growth areas for this kind of work. Consumer products, although, you know, in many cases they don't directly sell their products, so they don't have as much direct consumer data, but they're getting more of it. In industrial businesses, I think there are some interesting things happening with digital twins and predictive asset maintenance and so on, but it's still probably going to be less than in the consumer-oriented businesses. And among functions, I think the fastest growing areas are still marketing, which has lots of access to data. Sales increasingly has a lot of data, you know, in marketing sales, I think we'll have to collaborate more in the use of analytics. And interestingly enough, I think human resources is one of the big growth areas in terms of identifying people who would be high performers within the organization, avoiding attrition, et cetera. Now there's more legislation brewing about that category than any other area. So we may not be able to use some of these analytics that we have developed, but until now, it's been, it's been very fast growing over the past several years. Yeah, it really shows how many areas analytics can be used for. And it's just up to our imagination, basically, because we are collecting so much data and all these things uh, because we are in the digitized world. Tom, you've mentioned that you have a book coming out. I'm very interested in reading this book. Do you have a timeline for when we should expect it to be on bookshelves around the world? Yeah, well, I actually have three books coming out in 2022. (laughs) One is the one that I mentioned. It's going to be called All In on AI. And we're shooting for October on that one. I just finished one with a couple of co-authors on AI and healthcare. And that one, I think, should be, you know, maybe summer, Northern Hemisphere summer. And then the third one is pretty much done, but also takes a long time. It will be called Working with AI, and it's 29 case studies of people who work with AI on a day-to-day basis. All of them will be coming out, um, I would say, summer, August, September, October timeframe. Brilliant. I've just published a a book myself with a bunch of co-authors, and I know how long that took for us to organize. So I'm impressed that you can do three in one year. That's good. (laughs) Just barely got them done. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Tom, last couple of questions. So firstly, on Leaders of Analytics, we paid forward, which means uh, I asked you, who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? I would probably turn to one of these organizations that I've been doing work with. I I really liked Dan Jeevans at Shell because he combines really this process re-engineering approach with AI. They're doing some really interesting work. There are several people at um, DBS who I think would be good candidates. Um, 
there's a head of data and analytics, but also head of digital transformation, a, a multitude of people to choose from, a guy named Jing Zhao at Ping An. You can get him to talk to you. He's really impressive. And he's a he's their sort of chief scientist. And then, you know, in the in the US, I've been really impressed by this organization at Kroger called 84.51 degrees. It's a really interestingly named company. That's the longitude of Cincinnati. They're quite good. Andy Hill is really good at, at Unilever. So uh, a lot of people to choose from. Wonderful. Thank you for those recommendations. They are definitely ones that I will be looking up. Tom, lastly, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? Well, I sort of never had a thought I didn't publish. So um, most of it is either on my website, tomdavenport.com, or um, you can connect with me or follow me on LinkedIn. Almost everything I do ends up being mentioned on LinkedIn in one way or another. You can get access to it. I mostly write for Forbes, Harvard Business Review, and MIT Sloan Management Review, but everything gets mentioned on LinkedIn and in many cases put onto my website as well. Yeah, and I would recommend that the audience do check out Tom's website. It's a treasure trove of very interesting analytics content. So please go and check it out. Tom Davenport, thank you so much for being on Leaders of Analytics. Really appreciate your time and all the best and enjoy your day. My pleasure. Enjoy the conversation, Jones. 